0: Okay, well, this morning we're continuing with our last our last time spending um, spending the morning in a book that we don't spend a lot of time in uh, the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. This will be the last time we talk about that this morning. But I wanted to give one more one more week to it. If you brought your Bibles, you could find Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. If you grab one just like this, it's uh, we'll be on page we'll be on page five hundred sixty four in chapter or verse eight there. Um, but the, 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 the song opens up with uh, Shir of Shirim, Shir HaSharim, Song the Song. That's how it opens up. Song the Song, which is a way of emphasizing. Anytime you see two words close to each other in the Bible, it's trying to give you an exclamation point, it's trying to shout at you. And so what's being said here is that this is the song, the greatest one hit wonder of the ancient world. Everyone's playing it. But what's interesting about your Bible is you actually have three. Uh, sections of songs in your Bible, right? You've got the Psalms. Everybody knows that. It's actually a bunch of songs. Then you have uh, the Song of Solomon. And then you have Lamentations, which is a song of lament, a song of sorrow. And what's interesting is that Psalms, which are all kind of mostly directed towards God, you know, God, and love of God, Lamentations, which weeps about the brokenness of the world, these, both these books, neither one of them is called The Greatest Song. But The Greatest Song according to your Bible, is the love song. That's kind of interesting to me, just to think about for a bit. But the song is roughly 3,000 years old, and this means that when you're reading it, it's going to sound odd to your ears. It's not going to rhyme the way we think it should rhyme. And the imagery, the illustrations are bizarre. They're strange to us. And they're actually kind of comical as you read them, if you really put your thought into it. And so I I thought I'd share with you my favorite, my favorite lines from the song. So here we go. Three, four. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. I just couldn't help but think of like, like, baby, your neck's so thick. I love it. It was just kind of strange, you know. Um, 512, your eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. And I get that the author is trying to say your eyes are white like a dove, which is the illustration of the bathed in milk. But I couldn't help but think of a dove taking a bath in milk. And also, who compliments the whites of somebody's eyes? (laughs) Has anyone ever done that? Like your eyes are so blue, your eyes are so green, your eyes are so white? What is that? Strange. All of your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins. Your teeth are like an oversized sheep. Like there's a lot of them, a lot of oversized sheep in your mouth. I just, as you think about it, it's, just, it's sort of funny as you put your mind. to so you This is not the sort of lines you'll catch in, in Justin Bieber's new album, these are not what you're going to hear. And then, of course, the cutie right? The greatest of all lines. Your belly is like a heap of wheat encircled by lilies. I decided not to illustrate this for my own safety's sake. <laughs> but again, you get the idea, right? There are images that don't make a lot of sense to us. They're almost comical. They are, in many ways, comical to us, but you get the idea. I hope of of what's being communicated by these images, because if you imagine yourself, your, your your hunger or fullness depend on how many babies your ewes kick out. Right. So if you have ten ewes and they're pregnant, they're all pregnant. You have twenty ewes. I know. I didn't say this is give me math, basic math. You have 20 years, But if they're all pregnant with twins, I mean, it's a lot. Like, you've got, you have just, like, it's, it's amazing. It's beautiful. Plus, in the ancient world, you know, before toothpaste, white teeth, or even dirty teeth are good, because you've got them, right? So there's all kinds of things that are being said here that do make sense to us if we think about it. But the jokes don't hold well if you tell your wife your teeth look like pregnant sheep. She didn't appreciate that. Didn't didn't go over well. Also, this one ran out of entertainment real quick. I'm still using it, but... (laughs) All right, I want to get to some serious matters, though, because as we think about these lines, just for a second, I want to stop here because it doesn't matter this morning whether you have a background, because I know there's a lot of varied backgrounds here in terms of your your Christian background. If you're a Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox or maybe you grew up Lutheran or Presbyterian or non-denominational, Church of Christ... Maybe you're liberal, maybe you're conservative, uh, maybe you're something in the middle. Whatever you find yourself, if you call yourself a Christian, one of the things that we have through the ages is that we all agree that this is the word that we have from God. We disagree about how to read it sometimes, but we all agree this is it. And what is in it? This! Isn't that kind of fun? Isn't that just kind of fun? And I I stressed last week that perhaps, perhaps God put this in the middle of your scripture so that we don't forget to be human. That we don't forget that God gave us a body and that we're supposed to enjoy it and that life is great and you should run in the hills and you should hold hands with your spouse or your girlfriend or whoever. Skip through the valley. Well, skip through the snow. It's not going to work. Daffodils? Are we just naming random flowers now, Peggy? Is that what we're doing? (laughs) Yeah, you totally threw me off. I don't know what to say. All right. Uh, I think the second reason, perhaps, not just to be human, but also that we might not take ourselves so seriously. Because in realizing how momentous and special and holy this scripture is, we can mistake our reverence for Scripture, for taking ourselves too seriously. Because this is in your Bible. I didn't write it. God wrote it. And this draws us to some interesting thoughts. But instead of doing that, let's turn to chapter 8. In chapter 8, I want to focus on this little section here because as, as the song is winding down we have this little section here that I think actually drives at the heart of what the song is about. So this is chapter 8, verse 6 and 7. This is the woman singing to the man, and she says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal on your arm. Now the word seal here might mean could mean aquatic animals to you. I'm not sure. But what it really means in terms of the text is that when you made a contract or even sometimes when you send a letter, maybe you've seen that where they put wax on a scroll and they press a, press a seal into that wax. That seal gave authority, gave possession, gave belonging, gave legal status, right? It's an important thing to have a seal and to, be, to have an object that is sealed, right? It belongs to something. So the woman is saying, set your seal on, on my heart, my will, my emotions. Set your seal on my arm, that which I use to do and to act and be the world. Make me yours. Right? That's what's being said by this, by this seal. So set your seal upon your set me as a seal on your heart set as a seal upon your arm for love is as strong as death jealousy as fierce as the grave it flashes its flashes are the flashes of fire the very flame of the lord many waters cannot quench love neither can floods drown it if a man offered for love the wealth of his entire family his entire estate he would be despised For even thinking such a thing. Love is more precious than anything. It cannot be bought. It can only be given. And it can be, in this way, love can be stronger than death. It seems to indicate, or at least the desire of it. And what's interesting about the song, is, as as is true with songs, it doesn't describe love as strong as death theologically. Well, let me explain to you all the reasons why love can be as strong as death. No, it does it in style, right? It does it in style, and so what is the style that you have? What is the shape of the song? Because the shape of the song declares the meaning of the song. And so what you have in this song is a constant restart of love. It never actually happens. So you have in chapter 1, the woman calling out, I want to find my man. So she chases him, but her brother is getting in the way and lock her in the vineyard. In chapter 2, the man sings about how pretty she is. In chapter 3, she dreams of her lover and the dream arouses her to such an extent that she goes into the street to find her lover, but the police stop her and send her back home. Then in chapter 3, the man sings about how pretty she is again. In chapter 4, she hungers for her love and so she chases after him again. I don't know what the police are doing or why she's always doing it at night, but the police find her again and turn her away and send her home. Then in chapter 6, the guy sings about how pretty she is again. He does it again in chapter, it's, it's kind of a theme, right? But the point is that, that every time you want to put a pin in the song, every time you think we can just like be done with this, they've met, they've come together, it's happily ever after, the song stops and then restarts again. Love is never quite achieved, right? It has to kind of constantly be chased after and looked at. Perhaps married people could take some advice here. Yes? But the point is to say that it's never quite complete. Even in the last lines of chapter 8, we have, it it kind of happens again. It opens, chapter 8 ends with a chorus of the friends. They open up the scene. Then the man cries back, "How, Oh you who dwell in the gardens with your companions, listening for your voice, let me hear it. And she calls back, Make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountain of spices.
1: (laughs) When's the last time you
0: said that in church? And so you have, again, the song sort of, even as it ends, it takes up the call again. There's a renewed call to, to, to love. And again, then, what is being communicated here is love doesn't end it keeps on being resurrected, keeps on finding new life. It never finds its completion. In fact, it is stronger than death because it keeps on going, right? That's the point. That's the the metaphor that's being drawn through the song itself. A lot of people have um, songs. How many of y'all have like Maybe you who are married or dated or had, you know, yeah, you have a song. Songs that mean something to your relationship. A song that takes you back to a moment or a time. Laura's not here, so I can say whatever I want. Great. Uh, we have a song, one of the songs that takes us back, that takes us back to uh, a time in Tennessee pre-kids. Pre, pre <laughs> Joyful times. <And laughs> we'll edit this. All right, what was I saying? Oh, it goes, uh, love of mine, one day you will die, but I will be close behind. I'll follow you into the dark, which is ostensibly darker than this love song. But the idea is the same. If you are listening to a song from the 60s, or you turn around the radio and listen to a song from today, or you listen to a song that is 3,000 years old, you still hear the same sense of longing coming out of it, right? You have the Song of Songs calling out this idea, this hunger for love, for companionship, and for eternity. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't matter if we're talking about a song from the 60s, a song from today, a song from 3,000... It doesn't matter if we're talking about the song of songs from the Bible or you're talking about guns and roses, which is not a thing I get to say in church very often, so I'm going to do it again. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about the Bible or guns and roses. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about the secular or the sacred. The human heart hungers for three things, regardless of time, space, language, color... Love, companionship, and eternity. How many secular love songs do we hear on the radio saying and claiming our love will last beyond death? There is a hunger in the human heart for eternity. And if it doesn't scream from even guns and roses itself, can't, can't scream any louder the fact that we hunger for God. There is something in us that draws us to this reality. Whoever you are and whatever you feel, you have felt the hunger for love, companionship, and eternity. And we talk, uh, Pat Hill is here. Last week, and I think it was the, the, the time before that that he was talking about how he was sort of serving the, he was serving the Northwest College there by running a survey to ask the students, all these college students coming in for freshman year, and all the college kids coming returning, and they're milling about, you know, these, these missionaries that we're, we're, we're funding, you're funding. They're milling about asking the question to students, what is it that you feel like you're missing? What is it you feel like you need? What is it you're struggling with the most? And what was their number one answer? Their number one answer? Loneliness. 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 How many social media apps do you have on your phone? But we're lonely, right? Because we're embodied. And until I shake your hand and see your face and hear your voice, I'm never really sure of you, and you are never really sure of you. We hunger for a human connection, and that connection cannot be met in any other way than in our bodies, right? In that connection. And so the song speaks this universal truth but it speaks it in a way that we can't help but also think about God. We can't help but hear love as strong as death and not begin to wonder, don't we need something more powerful than just our human expressions of love? Don't we need something stronger than even human love to capture that moment? If we need love as strong as death, then don't we need a power more powerful than ourselves? And some of you who are Christians are here. You're like, hey, like, this is the moment right now where you talk about Jesus. But I'm not going to do that, right? We're going to keep going. Because there's a very interesting thing that we've been doing in our, uh, in our, our, our 401 classes. We've been studying this, and we've learned that the Jewish uh, way, method of interpretation is a little bit different than the Christian method currently of interpretation. It begins with this word called Peshat. If you're, if you're looking at the song together... We immediately look at the song and we look at the horizon of the song and the song itself seems to be just about a boy and a girl falling in love, chasing each other, describing each other. Smells like middle school, right? Then it moves on to the next layer though called Darash, where suddenly we are beginning to think broader because the song is not the only word that the Bible has to speak, right? If you begin with the beginning and you go to the end, you find out that the whole of scripture is about God's love for his people and his desire to reach into the mess that we've made and lift them up by this great word we call love demonstrated in the greatest of all humans, we call Jesus, right? Right? And so, so immediately, Jewish and Christian interpreters saw in the song something more. Something about God's relationship to us. But then it can go one layer deeper because not only does God's love extend to all of humanity, but we, you, I, as individual members of the body of God are also being drawn to his love. That God, as we sang even today, Jesus is in this room and he is coming to your seat to speak to you, to call you because he loves you. It's imperative, though, that we lay this grounding first, though. That first it is God's love for his people. Because if you invert that, as we have in our modern expression of Christianity, you create consumeristic Christians who think that really the story is about them as individuals and God. And that is not so. It is about God's glory, right, displayed in his redemption of his people, and you and I as extensions of that receive his grace lastly there's this thing called sod and i'm just going to call that music from the hearts of space because it's too deep and too crazy for us to even get into but the point that i'm trying to draw is that as we've read this song christian interpreters Jewish interpreters throughout history have seen more than just boy meets girl, even though that is present here. In fact, they saw it so deeply. They saw this love song as a song about God and his love for us that we forgot the part about being human, and we began to elevate spirituality over humanity, right? And these things are not in opposition, but rather tied into one embodied being, but what we have also uh, what we're also in danger of forgetting is this larger this larger view of this song in which love is as great as death and it does make us think about God's love for us about how the world is full of the glory of God that we need to recognize that and then praise God for it that the letter of Hebrews reminds us that that God spoke to us in ages past through the prophets But in these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. So that no matter what we do with the Bible, no matter how we read it, we're always reading backwards. We're always reading Jesus into the story because we cannot help but hear the ever clamoring message and power of the good news of God's transformative love. We can't not hear Jesus All things were made for him, through him, by him, and in him, we read, all things hold together. So when the ancient Christians would read these lines, well, we'll get there. I lost it. No, no. Okay, we're going too far. When they read the lines that love is as great as death, they can't help but think of John 3.16. How many of you guys know that? Can we even do that? Do that all together? King James Version. Make sure you get the these and the yees. Right, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever should believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Why does that verse have such sticking power in our minds? Why does it have such sticking power that we teach it in Sunday school to kids who maybe show up to church that one that one VBS, and then they they go away and never come back, but they kind of remember John 3.16 about God so loving them that they believed he'd save and they would have. Why does that resonate with us so much? Don't you hear it? Love, companionship, and eternity. That hunger is in every single one of us and it will never find its completion until it finds its completion in God. And this is the truth that Christians know that you won't always get from the pop radio is this yes, it's wonderful to be human. Yes, you should enjoy love. Yes, there's probably nothing grander than it in all of the world except for this. You will never find your completion in a relationship with another human. You will find your completion with a relationship with God and humans. This grand brought together moment that God and all of his people are brought together. God is in their midst. That last vision in Revelation, God is in their midst. And because he is in their midst, he can wipe away every tear from their eye. And we've gathered around him as we sang today, casting down crowns, bowing before him, seeing the mystery unfold in all of God's glory and when Revelation cries out in glory the first time, it's for God, and the second time, it's for Jesus. And so we can't help but read love as strong as death without reading also Jesus. St. Augustine put it this way, one of the most beautiful lines of Christian literature now well over, 15, well over 1,500 years, and yet, as is true today, as it ever was, miss, because you have Made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. There is no more greater and complete truth. That's why love has to sort of restart itself in the song, right? The song restarts and restarts and restarts, right? Because we have to do that. But once we meet God, it doesn't restart in the same way, but rather continues on. We're called to recognize the love of God even as we read this song recognizing the call to humanity we also want to recognize the call of life. And so I want to leave us with this this word from Romans which speaks of God's great love a word that we are very familiar with. But if you'd stand for the reading of God's word I want to end here. And as we contemplate The gift of God's love, the gift of his love, both in our human expressions, but especially now, the gift of his love to us. Let us hold fast to these promises, and if these promises are not yours, you can't lay claim to them because you're not a Christian and you don't know Jesus. We invite you to come and meet me down here, meet our elders in the back if you're more comfortable with that. Whatever you have to do to meet God today so that these words can be true of you. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all good things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, the one who is raised, and now who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding with God for us. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trial or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? For it is written that we're driven and killed all day long for your sake. We're regarded as sheep led to the slaughter. But no, even if that is true of us, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things past, nor things present, nor things to come, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.